Hello everybody, uh, my next guest is not only single-handedly running a private applied behaviour analysis or ABA consultancy for children and parents dealing with autism, but she is also the president of Junior Chambers International in Ireland and was nominated for the title of Mayo Inspirational Woman of the Year. The Westport native has completed a arts degree in psychology and sociology from NUIG Galway and received a distinction for an ABA diploma from Trinity College Dublin. She has since been working in the field of ABA for the past eight years and still is positively transforming the lives of children with autism. You are most welcome, Kira Kiel. You How did your you? homework. <laughs> I did. It's a luxury to pursue what makes you happy. It's a moral obligation to pursue what you find meaningful. And that doesn't mean it's easy. It might require sacrifice. When perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun. Spread the word on mental health so when other people are in this position in the future, they know where to go and they know what to do because there's a blueprint. I think everybody is stuck in the same cycle of looking at how we need to throw money, more money at mental illness and the problem will go away but it's the incorrect way to look at it. So you have an entire generation growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations, right? Through no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own. Understanding how our mind works, how our emotions work, can help us understand how to get more satisfaction in life. So I'm, I'm going good. to jump straight into it. Um, so it's very clear you have strong expertise in the field of autism. Uh, it's one of the most researched and funded neurodevelopmental disorders in the world. My first question to you is, do you feel that all that money in research has improved working with the diagnosis? Are we as a society dealing well with autism? Good question to start <laughs> off straight in at the deep straight end. In. I would say yes and no to that question. Um, okay. So clearly there has been a lot of money in research going into autism and I think from a parent's perspective everybody wants to know what's causing autism mm. and they're not really much closer to figuring that out I mean what they have figured out is yet in you know there in some cases there is that genetic component but in 90% of the cases they're not exactly sure what's what's causing it so um if you have a sibling that has autism, then you there's a little bit more of a of a percentage of a chance of, of somebody else getting it. If you have a, a twin with autism, then it goes up to I think sixty percent. Um we are getting better at earlier diagnosis, and I think that is a huge um part to play in the research. And I think um what has definitely become better is the awareness the awareness in society is better I mean I'm about 11 years into my career and in the beginning when I started working with autism people had either not heard of it or they had maybe thought of Rain Man if they'd seen the movie yeah. and then if somebody else had any experience with somebody with autism it was somebody maybe who was absolutely non-verbal and self-injurious whereas now I think People are a little bit more aware of the fact that it's such a large spectrum. Um, and I think you think of campaigns like Light It Up Blue, where some of the biggest buildings in the world go blue for April. And I think the birth of social media has really helped as well. Um, so, yeah. OK. Um, and you mentioned then as well early diagnosis. So what ages do you normally work with or is it varied? <laughs> what age do I work with? What age do I like to work with? <laughs> um, I absolutely love if I can get somebody even pre-diagnosis. And I think this is the 
the benefit of working in a private consultancy in that I don't need somebody to have a diagnosis before I see them. Um, their diagnosis sometimes helps me a little bit know what I'm working with. But when you're dealing with behavior analysis, you're looking at the behaviors anyway. The diagnosis just gives you a bit more hints about what you might be looking for. Um, so I like to start working people with people at like 20, 22 months. But so the diagnosis. So when you yeah. get called in pre-diagnosis, is that basically parents are just um, they're seeing signs or. So, yeah, they might be seeing there. They have concerns or, okay. or you know, they don't even know. They m- mightn't even say they're seeing signs. An yeah. odd few parents are kind of going, oh, somebody mentioned a red flag for autism. Um, but in generally, it's he or she is not talking um, or he or she is having huge, huge tantrums. And then um, I get a referral from the parents. And what are the general uh, signs for parents that might be listening? What would the general signs? What would they be? What would you say they generally are? For autism, is it? Um, I guess you're looking at kind of three things. So one of the biggest ones and one of the most obvious ones from a parent perspective is that delay in language. And another big one is kind of impaired or missing play skills or not your general play skills. Mm. So sometimes you have somebody who maybe spin items or flick objects and then you might have somebody else who's lining up toys and two brand new parents who maybe don't have any other kids they think that they've got this really tidy neat um child but um it's it's and it's more than just any child if you give them 20 animals we'll generally put them in a nice neat row we we put our books in a row but this is kind of a more repetitive way um and then you're also looking for what's called like idiosyncratic behaviors so things that are just um a little bit different to the norm so hand flapping maybe spinning in circles rocking back and over and yeah. um, that kind of thing and um then so there's obviously a big issue at the moment then also with adhd do you mm. deal a lot with that or are they more independent um i kind of deal with with so autism would be my main bread and butter if if you like but I'll deal with anybody who comes to me if I can help them. So I have um, some experience with ADHD, some experience with autism and ADHD, and then some experience with ADHD and sensory processing disorder or ADHD on its own, um, but more so autism. Okay. And uh, so you specialize specifically in ABA or uh, applied behavior analysis. Can you explain a bit more exactly what that is? (laughs) What is ABA, the big myth? Um, I think, number one, it's probably not what people think it is. Yeah. Number two, if somebody says to you, I don't do ABA or I do ABA, then they have no idea what ABA is. <laughs> I, I had um, I had a friend who basically described it as um, she was a teacher and she described it as allowing the child to do whatever they wanted. Is how right. Yeah. How no. it was <laughs> Let me try and explain it in, in simple terms. So ABA basically is applied behavior analysis. And what it is, is the science of behavior. So what we try and do is using the principles of our science, we try and understand why behavior is happening. So when we understand why a behavior is happening, then we can look to replace it or teach other skills. So I often use the metaphor of a fire. So if you pretend for a moment that you're a fireman or a firewoman and you arrive at a fire and all of the fire looks the same. So it's all got flames, it's amber, it's red, it's hot. But if the fire was started with oil, you're not going to put it out with water. 
this is where I lose tracks. I'm like, I don't know what they put out fires with, but if it started with gas, like, you know, you need to get rid of the oxygen. If it started with wood, you, you, wood, you can put water on it. So that's giving you a little bit of insight into ABA where shouting, you know, might look the same or climbing might look the same or banging, the, banging your head might look the same. But the reason why somebody's doing it will determine how we you know, replace it or reduce it. Um, And then I guess what ABA, when people think of ABA, they think of, sometimes they think of dog training. Um, And this, I I think some people have experienced bad ABA. Um, And like any profession, there's people, number one, pretending that they're qualified. Mm. um, And number two, there's excellent people and there's people who need more experience. So when people think of the dog training type part of ABA, they're they're talking about discrete trial teaching. And here is um, just one part of what we do. Whereas when you break tasks down into really, really small, achievable um, parts, little components, we call them like short-term objectives, and you teach them one by one quite repetitively, with reinforcement until yeah. you get to the end goal. But as I said, that's just one part. There's lots of other principles you won't have heard. So it's like, not it's not a one size fits all either then? It's not at all. Okay, and we do an great. awful lot of anything that we do, we try and gen- generalize back into the environment. So natural environment teaching. And then most of us, you know, we're not we're not cardboard um, boxes. So yeah. a lot of us will do things like floor time, but incorporate the principles of reinforcement mm. and shaping and things like that within it. Okay, great. Um, And then, so you mentioned um that you work with children from a young age, but when they start school, then would you still work a lot with them or is it a bit less? Yeah, so the, my, my career has changed a little bit over the years. So I have worked with anything from 18 months right up to kind of 21, 22. Oh, wow, okay. And I don't have a you know particular age limit that I work with but my kind of main area of expertise and where my career has kind of gone over the last number of years is early intervention that would kind of be my speciality but um, again as I mentioned I am a private consultant so my waiting list is really long because my clients stay with me for years okay so I have a couple of clients that have been with me for eight or nine years and then how do you manage the transition then do you try to slowly move away or yeah so in the beginning they might have a lot of hours and then it'll reduce down and reduce down and reduce down um to where I'm seeing them maybe once a month or once every six months um and then when one kind of leaves it makes way for for somebody else Mm. um but I keep my client list to about 25 26 and is there generally a dependency with autistic children how do you mean by dependency uh, on on yourself when you're working with them for so long i think you f- you have to fade yourself out that's part of the job and i guess my career has changed and shifted a lot from the beginning i would have been in schools um and you might have one or two children that you work with all week then i moved into home tuition where i had two kids for 10 hours a week now um i work more on a consultancy basis so i'm seeing some kids once a week or some kids once okay. a month and when it goes to that you're pushing more towards parent training parent education teacher training and bringing in the family and the resource workers and that kind of thing so then no the kids aren't dependent on you but you do have to develop a relationship and i think this is where sometimes it can fall down within the hsc and the department of ed because the best the professionals might only get to see somebody once every six weeks or once a month and then it's really difficult for that Mm. relationship to form where you can get meaningful work done in the sessions yeah um, and that was actually, you actually nearly just answered my <laughs> next question. Do you think it's more autism? Do you think it's more the responsibility of the health side of things, the HSC, or do you think it's more responsibility of the educational side? Yeah, I I think it, the answer is definitely both. Um, in one sense, I would say the health side, 
because if you look at America and things like that, the likes of applied behaviour analysis is covered under their health insurance. In Ireland, you can get private speech and language therapy and private occupational therapy covered under some health insurance policies. Within our structure, SLT and OT come under the HSE. Um, In my area, we're a little bit of limbo (laughs) Um, because we would kind of see ourselves one part education and one part health. Yeah. So a lot of the skills and things that we teach, we do a lot of academic work when, when we get the chance. And that obviously comes over the academic side of things. But when it goes into behavior support, that can kind of be seen maybe under the health side. Yeah. And definitely if you look at issues, maybe like sleep related issues or toileting related issues or um, behavioral issues, that can kind of come under health mm. side. Because one thing I've noticed as well from working in schools in the UK and Ireland is that the amount of uh, send teaching assistance, there's so many more in the UK than there is in Ireland. Yeah. Um, and it's not because there's less diagnoses or anything. It's nearly like it's completely different. Yeah, it's there's been a lot of change at the moment. Mm. Um, I suppose I can only speak maybe from the mainly from the Mayo side of things, but um, there has been a bit of change over the last number of years where it, you used to have to go into the assessment of needs process and then you'd get a diagnosis and then you'd be referred on to teams. But there's such a backlog now on the assessment of needs that now they're trying to see people, you know, get them in and get them into the early intervention teams. But even at that, you know, there's so many different embargoes and freezes that, you know, I have, you know, a couple of kids that I'm seeing and they're on waiting lists for two years. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really difficult. And then there's been huge changes within the education system since I started. So when I started, I was in um, a private or a, a public ABA school. It was a pilot pro- program run by the Department of Education. And then a couple of years ago, they closed all of those schools and changed them into special schools. Okay. And then they really started pushing the, you know, the SNA. Yeah system and now in the last couple of years they're trying to bring that into preschool where they're pushing the aim system um and there's also the home tuition route but there's an awful lot of change going on and i think you know if it works well if people get trained um, a little bit more and the ratios go down i think it can work well but at the moment it's somewhat working or working in some places and in others um and then actually you kind of mentioned it there um what do you feel about mainstreaming children with autism do you think it's a good idea putting them into mainstream schools it depends on the child (laughs) you'll you'll hear me say that all of the time (laughs) so if you're a behavior analyst like myself we would work off um, assessments and they're different to the kind of cognitive psychological assessment that'll give you a score of where your child is at we work using the vb map and the ables so the vb map is your verbal behavior milestones assessment and placement program which is basically like what the public health nurse uses you know to check but it's in broken down way 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 more Mm. and the ables is the assessment of basic language and learning skills so we're looking at somebody from receptive language expressive language play skills self-management skills group instruction on and on and on and we don't see one is more important than the other. You try and get the skills to come up at the same time. So whether whether they're suited to a mainstream classroom or an ASD unit or whatever it is, you're still trying to touch on all of the needs. So it's not just enough to put somebody into an ASD unit and not make sure that they have maybe a buddy system or that they're working on whatever play skills or social skills that they're yeah. at, whether that's parallel play. So I think that for some kids, the best the best route is 
into mainstream, into the mainstream classroom with an SNA or with a couple of hours of resource work. Um, for other kids, it's within a unit with one to one and um, a little bit of access then to maybe junior infants. Mm. Um, it just depends on the child. For some, it's it's get them at home, get the home tuition done and then get them across. Okay. But it depends. It's more, it's more are all of their skills been covered? And I think that that's only working somewhat at the moment because if you are in an ASD unit and you have six kids and three staff, you still have to try and cover everybody's needs. You don't have one-to-one. You're trying to cover the individual education program of each child, but still manage a classroom. So it's difficult. Mm. And when you're measuring the progress, now would integration into the classroom when they're in the mainstream, would that be a big measure of outcome? Or So again, this is kind of like, um, I think we're ABA um, professionals struggle to, to get into the real world and we're adapting a lot ourselves because we are a science okay. so we have you know we take a baseline we put in an intervention we measure it we have a graphing protocol yep. if it's not making progress over a number of sessions we make a change we figure out what's not working if it's increasing you know we keep going you know then when they've learned one skill we add on the next skill and the next skill when you go into the home setting or the school setting we have to adapt our measurement standards because the teachers aren't necessarily able to you know take you know incident by incident data for us so what we'll try and do is things like target lists so let's do a measure did they have any of these skills then come back after a month have they have they improved? Um, you'll see things like homeschool journals with maybe rating scales. So what was the behaviour today? Well, you know, in terms of like, if it was ADHD you were dealing with, we'd say, and you might measure different times of the day. So we say morning to break time. What level were they um, in terms of regulated or, or maybe hyper? And then middle of the day and after lunch, and that'll help you decide then yeah. if medication is working or if the strategies you're using are working. Um, so it's it's difficult, but we're adapting. So lots of journals, um, lots of rating scales and target lists. Because so. there's arguments as well, though, that um, autistic children don't need to. There's no reason why they need to integrate. There's no benefit to that because... Um, I've read researchers speak about how the education system now at the moment is only teaching children how to work for others. Mm. Um, And just because autistic children aren't suited to work in our typical workforce doesn't mean they still can't have a high quality of life, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's I really think it does come down to one size fits all. One size doesn't fit all um, box. And I think the difficulty at the moment is that what what suits each individual child there isn't all the options available. So mm. for some kids, being, you know, getting that one-to-one support at a home tuition level and being at home and then maybe going to a PE class or a swimming class or, you know, activity centres to get their socialisation would work better. But there isn't that option, we'll say. So if you have a, a child that's, um, I think if they're four and if there's any ASD preschool in their vicinity, so I think within 20 kilometers or 30 kilometers, they will have to go to that ASD okay. unit. And for some kids it will work, but I have other kids, we'll say, who maybe aren't ready to go straight into the mainstream. So, you know, I wouldn't advocate for that. Yet they don't need maybe the level of support that's in an ASD unit. Mm. And then maybe for them, what might be better is getting that option to stay at home and have a tutor. And, and integrate slowly into a, a mainstream play school. 
So it's it's a little bit it's a little bit challenging, but okay, we'll get there. <laughs> um, and then you actually mentioned earlier, which I was going to also ask you, uh, medication. Um, again, I'm aware now it wouldn't be a one size fits all, but do you feel it's over prescribed or do you see a lot of it in your field? I see less of it now that I'm self-employed. When I was in the schools, I saw a little bit more of it. I think that, again, I'll say it's not a one size fits all. And it definitely depends on the diagnosis. Okay. So if you have ADHD, then sometimes you need yeah. some medication. I worked with a guy recently who's in fifth class and he has no learning um, delay or disability. He has sensory processing disorder and he has ADHD. He doesn't fully understand his own sensory processing disorder, so we were working with, with helping him with that. But he did understand his medication and he kind of managed that himself, even though he was in fifth class. Okay. And sometimes he would get to school and if he forgot his medication, he would ask to go down to the secretary's office so we could call and get his mum to bring it in because he knew he needed it. Yeah. Um, and I have another little man at the moment. And like that, if he came, sometimes he comes to me at nine o'clock before he goes to school. And if he gets his medication a quarter to nine and he gets to me at nine, I'll get nothing done with him till about ten past nine. Um, whereas sometimes if he comes to me, if he's off school and he comes to me around one o'clock, we'll have a totally different session. Hmm. And the only difference there is medication. Whereas then I have also seen the downside to it where somebody maybe doesn't have access to behavioural support or OT and there can be an over-reliance on medication. So I think like anything, if medication is being used or melatonin, you know, for sleep or anything like that, the aim should be to reduce the medication over time. Yeah. By teaching other strategies to deal with the, the physical, um, mm. where possible to deal with the physical side. Have you worked with somebody who has been on medication and then over the years eventually weaned off it? Definitely melatonin. Okay. Um, yeah, so with autism, sleep can be a huge issue um, and melatonin can be prescribed quite a lot. And in some cases it helps the child to get to sleep. Okay. But um, I would often... You know, if that's the I would never tell a parent, don't go down the melatonin route. Um, you know, you're meeting families who the whole family aren't getting any sleep, especially if it's a small house. Yeah. But looking at trying to get strategies in place where you can get a sleeping routine, teach the child how to. So I have some kids that come in and they'll run back and over, back and over, back and over in the classroom. And you'll often hear people and say, no, that's a sensory need. And mm. it is a sensory need to run. But it doesn't necessarily mean they need to run, run, run the rest of their lives or get medication to calm them down. You just need to teach them how to regulate. So that can be like teaching them how to sit into a beanbag and listen to music for a couple of minutes okay. and teaching their body how to actually relax. Yeah. Um, so I had one particular kid who was on melatonin for sleep. And over time, we did a lot of work on learning how to relax, learning how to sit and play with toys, learning how to sit for deep pressure and massages, learning how to slow your body mm. down. And when we did that, he was then able to come off the medication. But it took a good six months. There's that new app as well, uh, Cam, if you're familiar with yes, uh, which yeah. I've heard great, great things. And then in relation to now when you're, wa when you're working with autistic children, um, do many other, is it more common for other mental health issues to come up or? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think in, in, in my case, it's, it's not a huge part of my work because I'm dealing with, you know, quite, when people come to me, it can be either as I said, pre-diagnosis, or if it's later on, it can be maybe more on the more severe end of the spectrum. Um, and with that stage, when we're looking at mental health, yes, there can be anxiety issues and things like that, but the way we deal with it has to be through, you know, 
adult mediated help we'll say um, and then when we're trying to teach we're kind of coming in with the basics of trying to first teach emotions and then like get the child to be able to label their own emotion maybe even mm. through pictures and then bring it down when when you're dealing maybe with you know Asperger's is now no longer in the diagnosis but we still all refer to it and um, if you're dealing with somebody maybe who has Asperger's then you can maybe go more into like books like you know the 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 anxiety gremlin or the anger gremlin or you can go into like that you know mindfulness um and meditation i know in in some of the schools now they are doing uh, mindfulness and meditation within the asd units so i'd like to see that in practice i haven't seen it yet um other than that then for me um and this is probably answering maybe a, a later question as well in that is there is there a gap when we were in college or when i was in college the the mental health side of things didn't come up that much and I think anxiety now is a huge thing childhood mm. anxiety I am getting so many parents calling me asking me can I help them with that and my answer at the moment is you know I'll do my best it's not my speciality so yeah. I'll see you see if I can help um, and I have linked in with a couple of other professionals who deal a bit more with mental health issues um, and I'm learning as I go and yeah. seeing what works but definitely I feel I need more help with that and more um, more expertise um, but it's definitely something coming up more and more especially with the kind of neurotypical kids I'm getting that a lot yeah it's going through the roof especially now with exam pressures as well it's getting worse yeah. really um, my, mindfulness I think is the one the leading one though that mindfulness is the best way to deal with it from a young age mm. um, obviously there are others and there's also medication but um, don't jump the gun would be my yeah. biggest advice straight away yeah. Um um, and then so you were speaking about how you sometimes educate one on one children. Um, so it <laughs> sounds like we're promoting us, but we're not. <laughs> what is your opinion on the idea of mental health education, like educating your typical children on uh, taking I, care I, of their mental health? I think at this point it's vital. And I think it doesn't matter whether it's a, a small child um, right through, you know, preschool, primary school, right into adulthood. I think that it needs to be a top priority. I think even for myself, it's something that I have been becoming more and more aware of in that sense of the alarm goes off, you get up in the morning, you go out. Um, and it's, I started going to yoga and stuff recently. And it's only then when you get into yoga and they're starting to say, now, you know, how do different parts of your body feel? The next thing you realize that yeah. the front of your forehead is rigid with, you know, tension, your shoulders are tension. You had no idea that you were feeling stressed because you didn't give yourself a second. And I think it's the same thing. Like I see a lot, especially with some of my, my kiddos with autism, but, but typically developing kids, especially around, I suppose, School time, new school. Mm. And we spend all summer telling kids who are about to go to junior infants, oh my gosh, you're going to school, you're going to get a new teacher, are you so excited? And there's this expectation on them to be happy and excited yeah. and they can't wait. But nobody realizes that like massive anxiety around going mm. into a new place. And, you know, that should nearly be the first thing that we should be thinking about is transitioning to this new place. Yeah. And how do you cope with it? What do you do if you're in school and you feel angry? What do you do if you feel worried? You know, and I think especially those early things of like teaching the child the vocabulary, they all know happy, sad, angry. Worried is nearly some of the last things that we we yeah. we teach them, or stressed. You know, now people say what what stress do kids have, but like they do, and especially now if you look at um, I suppose it's 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 summertime now, and you have people literally, you know, banging off the walls to get back to school, um, because they miss that structure. You know. And do you think the teacher should be taught about it, or do you think there should be people coming in? Again, this is not trying to bias you. Um, I think both. 
but it's like it's a what is it a four-year degree so i'd like them to be taught about applied behavior analysis i'd like (laughs) them to be taught about mental health i'd like to be taught but they obviously have to have to do their job so maybe um you know depending on the size of the school or the area i think yeah you know if it's it's a small area having a professional go around to different schools if it's a larger school a professional within the school but i definitely you know in an ideal world each school would have a speech and language therapist an occupational therapist a behavior specialist um, and a psychologist maybe that's 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 yeah because i I have so many friends now and that are teachers and they're expected to look after the nutritional needs the mental health the emotional the academic and it's just it's far too much but i definitely think lots of things are being more outsourced now mm. I see a lot of schools bringing in people for PE I see a lot of schools bringing in people to do music um, and only recently I was contacted by a new um, business that like that are going around doing mental health education within mm. schools um, so and that's what you guys I think are yeah. hopefully going to be doing <laughs> as well I'm freaking out here <laughs> <laughs> competition competition no but no it's, it's good yeah. though it is good especially in Ireland because um, the UK there is something set up and the other problem, though, in the UK is they have it, but it's extortionate. Only the private mm-hmm. schools can afford it, and that's not fair either. Yeah. I think the other big thing is more linkage with the school for the parents as well, mm. because, you know, typically developing or parents with special needs, the stress is unbelievable. Yeah. Um. So like that somewhere that parents can dip into to get that support on behaviour management or their own mental yeah, health their or their own. kids' mental health. Yeah. Um, so, you know... And actually, te- teachers' mental health is a big issue at the huge, moment yeah. as well. So yeah. it's the exact yeah. same. There is bits and pieces. I know that there's a charity in Ireland that do, that, that does um, free cognitive behavioural therapy mm. um, courses for like six weeks and you pay your money and then you get it returned. Yeah. Um, but that's only barely tipping the ice and then what's your opinion about um mental health in the country at the moment that's a big question it's not in a good place <laughs> um i think we have an epidemic of drug use an epidemic of suicides an epidemic of stress and depression so on one side we are absolutely at capacity and services are you know at their their max and we're we're not coping well on the other side, we're talking about it. We weren't talking about it a couple of That's years true. ago. It was taboo. A couple of my friends, a couple of my families. Um, when I say my families, it makes me sound weird. <laughs> like I have loads of families. I mean my clients. <laughs> so I have loads of kids. I have loads of moms. Um, but a couple of them, they're now going to see counsellors. And it's not a taboo subject anymore. Um, and people will say, oh, you know, I, I need to take some time off. I need I need some me time. We're starting to hear a lot of those words. There's so many more people. I mean, there's men doing yoga yeah. <laughs> and it's now a cool, sexy thing to mm. do. So a lot of people are doing meditation, guided meditation. We have the Calm app. Yeah. So I think there's definitely progress. Darkness into light is now, you know, big, big a big, big thing. So we're aware great. that we have a problem. We're aware that we need to change. But the system is crippled. Yeah. trying to support I think and yeah. do you think it needs a complete transformation or I think it's not fair for me to comment too much because I don't know the, the ins and outs of it but f- from a person who's very much on the outside I would have to say whatever's happening at the moment isn't working mm. um, you know I have a little bit of experience of trying to get people some help and um, especially if you definitely look at the, the drug use side of things yeah. it's impossible to get help um, it's you know there's so many different loopholes to to jump through um and then you know i have a a couple of friends that work in cams and things like that and 
you know, with people going on maternity leave or different embargoes, it's, you know, they're coming home completely stressed because there's somebody on their caseload who's completely vulnerable and they don't have the resources to support them. And they're trying to go on a holiday thinking like, you know, I can't ethically go because something yeah. could happen to my client. So without knowing too much of the ins and outs of it, I think definitely what's happening isn't working. Mm, I would agree. Advice for um, parents. If you, if there are parents listening right now that maybe have some fears, we'll start with that. If they have some fears that their child might be struggling, what is the process? Because this is something that's never made clear either. Yeah, one thing I would say is forget about the autism label for a moment or any labels. If you have any doubts or concerns whatsoever, don't wait. Don't bury your head in the sand. Your child will not thank you. If you have some concerns and you go and you seek help, and and I'll talk about the process in a moment, if there's nothing wrong, then there's no harm done. If you wait and bury your head in the sand then you're losing precious time that you will never get back. Um, the sooner that you act, the better. So look at the milestones online. There's so many things there. What should your child be doing, especially if it's your first child? Mm. Because I see kids coming to me and they might be three years of age and they're still being carried in by their parents. They still have their soother. They still look like a baby. Their parents can't in their wildest dreams imagine what they should be doing at that age or at 18 months or at 20 months your child still looks like a baby they're still your baby but what they're able to do so quickly is remarkable Mm. so keep yourself up to date with the milestones on where your child should be and if you have any concerns or doubts you don't even have to tell your friends and family but go to your doctor go to your public health nurse apply for you can you can self-refer to get on the assessment of needs process and if nothing is wrong then there's no harm done. But if you bury your head in the sand and you say, oh, you know, it, it's just he's a slow developer, or she's a slow developer, your child won't thank you. Hmm. Um. So you mentioned, which I do 100% agree that ignore the, the, the need for the diagnosis. Do, mm-hmm. do you think the diagnosis is helpful? It depends on the diagnosis. Okay. So if you're looking at, one, autism is one of the most helpful diagnoses okay. from the... Um, but is it not very broad? Yeah, I'll get to that in a moment. But from the from an early intervention perspective, the autism diagnosis, if you get it early enough, will give you access to home tuition. So from two and a half to three, your child can avail of 10 hours per week, one to one support from three to four. They can avail of 20 hours per week. One to one to support. So that's where the autism diagnosis is extremely beneficial at a young age. Um, it's not as important as, as it was a couple of years ago. You needed a diagnosis for anything. Right. Now there is that newer model where if there's concerns, they might bring in specialists um, to help with whatever those concerns are, whether the diagnosis is there or not. Um, for things like sensory processing disorder, when you have sensory processing disorder, you look normal whatever normal is you sound normal you don't ha- necessarily have any learning disability you might just seem like this angry um uncontrollable um you know unpredictable child mm. that gets labeled as naughty or bold from that perspective in the school setting the sensory processing 
um, disorder diagnosis is extremely beneficial. If you look at the ADHD diagnosis, I was in a school recently and the teacher said, if he doesn't stop flinging elastic bands, swinging on his chair, I'm going to kill him. He's out on the pitch and he keeps getting detention, you know, because he's too rough on the pitch. And I'm like, hang on a second, this child has ADHD and sensory processing disorder. So we got him, um, he was bursting pens as well. Yeah. So we got him this like thing that goes on the top of his biro that doesn't look like anything. It looks like a little rubber nearly. So mm. we choose that. We got him a fidget thing for his hand so he didn't have to be flicking elastic bands. We put in movement breaks that the child could either take themselves or their teacher could ask him to take where he got to go down to the gym and kick football for five minutes. Um, and then we taught him during football a red orange and green system for when he was being too rough um, because he didn't feel the way that we felt he was amazing at rugby not so good at soccer um, and within a couple of months a lot of those issues had completely reduced um, but it was understanding the ADHD and the sensory processing disorder yeah. so from that aspect um, the diagnosis is extremely helpful, helpful. Um, talking about discipline um, I, again I'm aware not one size fits all but what do you find generally is the most helpful way of dealing with discipline with children with autism or, D- or ADHD we'll go back to the fire um, okay. the fireman story so I would never ever use the word discipline um, okay. so basically figuring out why your child is doing something and then supporting them to change okay. so you're looking at Every, so everything that we would do would be in a multi-element kind of a way. So if you go into a lot of houses at the moment, a lot of them might have the naughty step. Okay. Um, some of them might have some sort of a star system in place. But generally, we go with the reactive short-term solutions mm. than the long-term um, life-saving solutions. So if you take... Uh, my friend rang me the last day and her little three-year-old... No, she's two and a half... And she said, I, she won't share. She's an absolute nightmare in the yard. And she keeps having tantrums in the house. I'm like, I don't think sharing is probably your problem. It's probably turn taking. She probably doesn't know how to take turns. Because sharing is if I have some of my crisps and I give you some, I'm not going to get them back. Um, and you share because you want somebody else to, you know, feel nice. Um, but I said, you know, it's it's more probably the, the turn taking. So it's like you need to, you know inside in the house yeah. teacher return taking skill first with mommy um, and how much fun that is and then go out to the yard and work on turn taking and then you know I said like I've been in your house I see how she drags you over to the treat press and she'll like keep annoying her especially if there's somebody in the house yeah. the child is like this is a great time and she'll hassle her and hassle her and hassle her to get to the sweet press so it's a, like setting boundaries so that your child knows what's acceptable not acceptable setting proper reinforcement system so that the child knows this is how I get my treats whether that's sweets or movie time or out to the playground how do I get there um setting clear consequences for okay this is what this is not acceptable behavior maybe having a nice rule sheet so these are the good things I'm supposed to do these are the things I'm not supposed to do this is what happens when I'm not good Um, and generally speaking what I prefer to do is when somebody's not good they don't get the reinforcer Mm. rather than putting them on a naughty step or taking something away so Um, no punishment or punishment is a last resort okay Um, so you're always looking at a proactive strategy you're always looking at skills teaching environmental support so if you look at like the restaurant um, and you have the the five-year-old in the restaurant and when they start getting a little bit annoying 
the parents will go and bring out some colouring. Yeah. And then when they get a little bit more annoying, they might call for some ice cream. Yeah. And when they get even more annoying, then the whole family has to get up and go. Yeah. So it's things like there, you know, if you're good for five minutes and maybe putting on like a timer or having a token system, you know, if you're good for five or ten minutes, then I'm going to get you a seven up. If you're, you know, if you're good and you don't move around during dinner time, then you're going to get access to dessert. Then we bring out maybe the phone and you can have the phone for 10 minutes or the colouring. Um, and we're going to go when mommy and daddy finish their coffee. Yeah. So we're not going on, on, on your terms. So I don't ever allow anybody to use the word bold or naughty. Good. My child is doing something because, because it gets them out of something, because they avoid something bad, because they get something good, because they get your attention. So when you know why they're doing something, then you have to teach them another way to get that and don't let the bad behavior get this, get that result. So you basically either can put out the fire or don't let the fire get started in the first place. Okay, perfect. Um, and then, so going back to my earlier question, um, parents who then get the diagnosis, so mm-hmm. they um, they see the problems and then they um, go to their doctor and they finally do get the diagnosis. Um, what would your advice be then immediately after? It's a long road. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing I would say if anybody is listening, is go through the assessment of needs process because then you have more rights. If there's anybody listening from the HSE now or that, they'll be like, what are you talking about? But when you go through the assessment of needs process, if you if you start that process, you then have some legal rights. So they have a time limit in which they're supposed to complete the diagnosis. Um, and from that, from the end of the assessment of needs process, um, you get a written statement on the recommendations for your child. So you have somewhere to go. So even if you do get seen by an early intervention team, I would still be advising anybody to go down that assessment of needs route. When you do get the diagnosis, be very clever. You're in the most devastating, heartbreaking time in your whole life. For some people, it can be like losing the child they thought they had or grieving for the life that thought their child was going to have. They don't know what the future holds. Um, so one thing I would say is like, don't lose hope. Don't look for quick fixes. Yeah. If there was a quick fix that worked, everybody would be doing it. Mm. You will be advertised and sold every kind of thing. Um, when you try something, try, excuse me, one or two things properly go all in don't try and do five or six different things at the same time yeah go all in and then use your use your head so when you start a therapy or you start a different program look at what skills they say they're going to teach and see if those skills are improving um i've had kids that go across the world to go into an oxygen chamber um and the parents come back and they say oh god there's such a great improvement and i don't see See, I don't, I'm not seeing anything and I know that they want to see that. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of families that were on this spectrum juice and I'm like, they don't know what causes wait, autism wait, yet wait, they wait, have wait, a juice oh, for oh, it. Yeah, spectrum juice. Spectrum what? juice. Yeah. And, and I'm like, what's in the spectrum juice? Now, in fairness, there was lots of vitamins and minerals in the spectrum juice. It wasn't doing the child any harm. But I'm like, what's this supposed to be targeting? So you'll hear people too, you know, the gluten-free, casing-free, dairy-free diet. I am all for the gluten-free, casein-free, dairy-free diet. If your child has gluten intolerances, dairy intolerances, check that out. Check what the diet is supposed to do. Um, Have you ever seen that before where there's been a a massive change because of dietary issues? 
for some uh, behaviorally behaviorally not not too much um language and stuff not too much um but mood wise um and appetite and stuff yes if somebody's allergic to dairy um and they're eating too much dairy you can see a lot of lethargy and you can see they've been sick and different things like that but you're changing a diet isn't going to cure autism yeah. um so just being aware of that and if you like there's a huge history and the huge um, amount of kids with autism that do have restricted diets anyway because they might only eat cream food or white food or they won't eat hot food so when before you put your child on a crazy diet make sure that you know why you're doing it and yeah. test that it's working um, other than that then I can't even remember what the beginning of the question was <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm gone <laughs> like, no, where uh, are we gone <laughs> um, it's um, if, um, if a parent has to deal with once they get told the diagnosis oh yeah yeah so basically the other thing I would say is you're going to probably um, get to OT, SLT, hopefully behaviour support. If you get too many recommendations, so we can be guilty of that as professionals, especially within the health service and the Department of Ed, because they might only see somebody very irregularly, so they're trying to give them everything that they need. When a parent gets home, they might have 15 or 20 recommendations, and that just seems like too much. Be honest and open with the person who's giving you support. Um, They're there to support you, so if something is too difficult or it's too much, let them know what's going to work within your life. So I often give behavior support plans um, and then I find out three weeks later that, um, you know, it wasn't done because it was just too hard. And I'm not gonna, so now I'm like, OK, what's up me this evening? And let me know how this worked out. Yeah, because sometimes when we come up with in our heads, then doesn't fit into somebody's family life. So being open, honest. Um, it's hard at the moment because the resources aren't there. Mm. So fight for your rights, fight for what you need. And then. If you know if you're on a two year waiting list for OT or you're on a two year waiting list for SLT, you know look at your child and see what's the most important thing that your child needs. Go down one route, um, and then be sure that it's working. Okay, perfect. And what about teachers? If uh, the teacher finds out that one of their students has been diagnosed, how should what would your advice be to them? <laughs> research. <Yeah. laughs> um, do your research. Call the professionals. Um, there should be close communication with the teacher and the parent anyway there is yeah yeah. but that's going quite well now I have to say there's been huge improvement with that there's lots of journals going back and over and the schools do have access to NEPs and they have access to the you know the speech and language therapists and education therapists they are coming into the school a little bit more but I think you know if you are um, a teacher and a child appears in your class that has a diagnosis you just might have to adapt your thinking a little bit you might have to put in a little bit of work at the beginning for long term, yeah. you know, long term, long term results. Sometimes the smallest changes can really, really help. Mm. Um, so l- little visual schedules, putting in timers, putting in some choices, putting them closer to where the teacher's sitting, just being a little bit aware if they have any sensory needs that putting them really close to another student or near the buzzing light. So I guess it's just about education, but working closely with the parents and the professionals, I would say. Yep, that's perfect. Um, and except for Spectrum Juice, um, <laughs> have you ever seen online, is there much advice going around that you just think is completely incorrect or is it common? <laughs> yeah, there probably is. Um, there's some really good advice out there yeah. and there's some really good videos. And then there's some really bad advice (laughs) (laughs) and that goes for anything. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's food and nutrition for, you know, people in their 20s who are, you know, 
drinking protein shakes to beat the band and you know taking steroids to beat them up or it doesn't matter what industry you're in there's going to be good advice and bad advice so I would just say that you know bear in mind the people that you're getting your advice from might be absolutely fantastic and excellent in their field um, or they might not be and they might look fantastic so take the advice and test it and see if it works for you the other side to it at the moment is there's a huge amount of um, parents advocating for, themse- for themselves at the moment, which is amazing. Um, and they're building a really good support network for themselves. But remember that it isn't a one size fits all box. And if you have one parent whose child isn't sleeping and another parent gives recommendations, the reason their child isn't sleeping might be totally different to the reason your child might be sleeping. If you okay. take headbanging, for instance, I have one child who headbangs to get out of doing things he doesn't want to do or to get things that he wants. I have another child who bangs his head because he needs sensory support. He likes to get head massages and stuff like that. He just didn't realize that in the beginning. So one was banging their head for the way that it makes their head feel. The other was banging their head so that the adults would either leave him alone or give him what he needed. For those two kids, the same thing would not work. So just don't take, just keep your head on you at all times. Mm, Okay. Um, and then I just have, uh, another question. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been asked by friends for this. So obviously you went down the psychology route, Mm -hmm. um, and this is specifically for listeners who are psychology students. And of course it's quite a difficult road to go down. Um, what would your advice be to them after they finish their undergraduate degree? Don't rush into anything. (laughs) Um, When I finished my undergraduate degree, I hadn't a clue. Yeah. what I wanted to do I had a clue whether I wanted to go down the psychology route whether I wanted to go back and do teaching whether I wanted to do social work I knew I wanted to work with kids and that's all about that I knew so I did work experience in different places and then fell into an ABA school fell in love with it and, and ran with it um, I was never a grade A student I was always like a C student an odd B um, and then if I really liked something I might get an A as soon as I found applied behavior analysis I was straight A yeah. Um. So one thing I would say is take your time. There's absolutely no rush, mm. but find the right career for you. Um, if you find yourself in a role where you don't know what you're doing, be really honest and open about that because we can <laughs> really mess up someone's lives. Yeah. Um, but take your time, do work experience. We're a really nice industry for the most part. Mm. Most people will give you work experience and psychology is such a wide open area. Which An educational psychologist is doing completely different work to a behavior sports specialist who's doing completely different work to somebody who's working in organizational behavior management and totally different to a clinical psychologist. So take your time. That is perfect. I also want to bring up one more thing as yeah. well. Um, the Helm. I need to promote The Helm. <laughs> I've been told that uh, Kira has the pub, The Helm, from um, in Westport in the family. So if anybody listening is ever in the west of Ireland, really, really recommend it. Um, and where can people find you, Kira, on social media? Yes. So I have a Facebook page, Kira Kyo Behaviour Consultant. Um, I'm also on Instagram, um, Kira Kyo. That's K-E-I-R-A. Um, so, yeah. Okay, perfect. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to you. And um, yeah, that's a wrap then. Thank you. Yeah.